The Way BK podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us here on The Way BK podcast. Me and Caleb are in the book of Joshua, and it's actually not just us. A lot of folks here in Brooklyn are continuing with the reading plan that we've laid out for this year, where we're trying to better understand God's story and the story that he tells through, through the Old Testament, through the life of Israel and what he was doing to bring salvation for the world. So uh, we've just gotten done reading the book of Deuteronomy, capping off the, the Torah, the first major chunk of, of the scripture. And we're going to be getting into the book of Joshua today. So if you'd like to join us in this reading program, reach out to us either on our Facebook page, reach out to us on our website, thewaybk.com. And we'd love to connect with you more and share with you what we're reading so that you can be encouraged in the scripture as well. For a lot of reasons, we all know this, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of dark times for a lot of folks, a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration. But um if we keep coming back to the word of the Lord, it'll empower us and strengthen us. And, uh, and I think this is especially, too, the book, especially true with the book of Joshua. It's interesting to me. It's not interesting. It's great. Whenever you read through the first several books of the Bible, it's pretty much all bad. You know, I mean, Adam and Eve, people of Noah's era, Tower of Babel, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're complicated at best, you know. Um, and there's some bright spots for sure, but there's a lot of pretty bad stuff. And then Israel's in slavery, they get out, but then once they get out, they're kind of always messing up, always complaining, always violating God's will. The book of Numbers is just a bunch of people getting dropped in the wilderness because of their rebellion. And the book of Deuteronomy is a mixture of remembering all the failures and um, looking forward to future failures ultimately. Uh, I think the book of Joshua for me and, and Caleb, I don't know what your vibe is uh, when you just think about the book of Joshua in general. The thing that I really like about Joshua is it's such a bright spot. There's definitely some blips on the radar and we'll talk about some of those today where they make some mistakes, but in general, it's a book of power. It's a book of success. It's a book of people really following after the Lord faithfully and that going well. So it's a really encouraging read. I know there's some parts that get a little dry whenever they start dividing up the land. We'll talk about that, uh, Lord willing, next week on the pod. But in general, it's a real it's a real breath of fresh air and of hope whenever in the in the scope of the story of, of God's people. Uh, that's kind of my general vibe on Joshua. I don't know what you kind of think, just big picture stuff before we start getting into it. Yeah, so for me, this is kind of like a the book of Joshua is kind of like a better version of the Moses story. You've got a lot of similarities between Joshua and Moses, um, you know, from the beginning of the book on. It's like, in some ways, this book is kind of showing Joshua as a new Moses. But uh, it's also emphasizing, you know, just how, uh, what things are supposed to be like when the Israelites obey and when the Israelites follow the law, it seems like this new generation is much more serious about following the law. Yeah, I think that's right. That's right. Which that's the hopeful part. And it gives kind of a blueprint for, Hey, here's how things can be well with you guys. Here's how you can succeed. So why don't we just go ahead and jump right into it. And we'll look at the beginning part of chapter one, Joshua chapter one, and we'll read verses one through nine and uh, kind of start looking at the, what, in some ways, is a preface to the entire book. It's a conversation between God and Joshua, but it really serves as a template and a preface for the, the rest of the book, especially that point you made, Caleb, about, hey, here's what happens if you obey God. Uh, I'll just read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. 
no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's an awesome text and an awesome way to start this book to me. And I'll just kind of set up big picture and then you can kind of start diving into what, what you see here, Caleb. To me, the cool part about this is you've got the first section, which is basically, hey, here's some promises. The land that I swore to your fathers, you're going to get it. Wherever you go, it's going to be yours. No one is going to be able to stand against you because not you're a brilliant military tactician, which Joshua had. You go back to Exodus 17. He had fought in battles before. But it's not that you're a brilliant tactician. It's not even that you were hanging around Moses so much and you picked up all the leadership tips from him. You're going to be successful because I'm going to be with you. And in the second half, verses 6 through 9, to me at least, and there's some of the promises mixed in in 6 through 9, but it's mostly, okay, now here's how you're going to go do this. Here's how you're going to go be successful. Here's how you're going to take the land of promise for your own. That's kind of what I see. What, what jumps out? At, I mean, that's just kind of a big picture framing that section up. What jumps out at you in verses one through nine? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> one, I think about when uh, when Moses dies, the impact that that would have had on Joshua. Like, this is like his, this is his guy, the guy who's taught him, the guy who's mentored him, the guy who's led him. Um, and uh, and both of us are blessed to still have uh, some of the guys who taught us mentored us and 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 led us through life still alive i've often thought about what will happen when 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 they pass like what will life be like you know where will we go how you know i think one thing that that if i'm joshua i'm tempted to be afraid and i'm tempted to be to be discouraged and one of the good one of the good things about god is he knows like what's going on with us he knows what we need that's exactly what he says to him at the beginning is be strong and courageous don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God is reassuring Joshua. And he's reminding Joshua that actually what was so great about Moses um, was that Moses trusted that God would be with him. That's what made Moses such a great leader and such a great servant of the people is the Lord was with him. And I think that's important for Joshua because um now that Moses is dead it's easy to think well where is the lord going to be now is the lord abandoning us is the lord and so the lord is reassuring Joshua and saying no um don't be afraid i'm still here i'm going to be with you wherever you go and that really encourages Joshua to then follow through um the other thing that jumps out particularly in this the beginning of this book is just the emphasis on be careful to obey all the law um don't turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep it on your lips always and meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything written in it. So not only is God saying, hey, I'm going to be with you, but he's also given him like the formula for how to be successful and how to um, and how to live a good life. And that is you keep the law, you obey the law, you make it that you are careful to do everything written in it. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to keep this law on your mind and in your heart and on your lips all the time. And as you're meditating on it, and as you're letting that, that as you're letting the law of God nourish you day by day, it will keep you focused. It will keep you obedient and it will keep, it will keep you safe in the arms of the Lord. And I think that's what, for the most part, that's what you see. The times in Joshua where things go poorly, it's because, um, you know, he's not thinking about the Lord. He's not going to the Lord. He's not leaning on the Lord. Um, but for the most part in this book, things are going to go well. And, and I think that's a big part of the reason why it's because Joshua is keeping the law on his heart day and night. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's not only meditating on it, but he's speaking about it. 
and he's teaching the people about it, um, about the word. And so this, this whole story here is a good picture of what, um, what happens when the people are trusting in God and hearing God's word and then letting it, letting it live in them. Yeah, I think that's right. Which for our purposes, uh, and I mean for his purposes, but definitely for us, one lesson we can take from this is it's, an, it's a, a different view of courage. Courage is not um, primarily about me mustering something up within myself or even just, I think a lot of times we think about courage, it's about doing something risky. I guess actually this is about doing something risky, but the risk is, as you said, to trust the Lord. Do what he says. Do exactly what he says. Don't rely on yourself and your own strength, even their collective strength. You listen to me. Um, and I think that's a really powerful thing. And, and courage is such a, a critical element of being a leader like Joshua or being a person who follows after God, period, or living as a human. It takes courage to do anything, um, at least anything meaningful. And this text teaches us real courage is to obey God. And that's the kind of strength, that, that's the, the way we derive our strength and our courage. Uh, and I also liked what you said where earlier, hey, he lost Moses, but God's like, dude, I got you. Like, yeah. Moses is gone, but I'm not. And just right. like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm your source of strength. I think of just, and I, you might want to say something else before we start moving in. We're going to start looking at some of the stories and lessons we get along the way. But one thing I'll say um, along that point of the parallel or the idea of Moses being gone, and you're like, oh, man, this is the guy who changed my life. What do I do now? Some have pointed out, and I think there's something to this, um, parallels between the book of Joshua and the book of Acts. So if you think of Moses being one of, and Joshua is too, but Moses as a, a, a pretty significant type of Christ or image of Christ in the Old Testament. So he's gone, but Joshua still carries on and in some ways expands on and really accomplishes what Moses was trying to work for, but never quite did. Well, Jesus in a similar way, not because he was incapable, but because of the way he set things up, he left earth. Like he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven. Well, then the book of Acts is a book about how God was with them because they did what Jesus told them to do. Right. God says, you do what Moses commanded you to do, and I will be with you, and you'll have success. You'll conquer the land. In the book of Acts, you see the apostles primarily and the church following after the guidance of the apostles conquering the world with the kingdom of God because God's spirit was with them, and they were following the commandments that Jesus had given them before he left. So I think whenever, uh, if you're a Christian, even if you're not a Christian, you can understand there's, there's more significance than, this than just, oh, here's some cool history about the nation of Israel. It's actually a shadow of what the kingdom of God, how God's kingdom works always. This is how it worked when God's kingdom was taking the land of Canaan. And it's how God's kingdom would work later in the book of Acts in conquering hearts of men all around the world. And it's how the kingdom of God continues to work today. So I think that's a valuable thing. And so this instruction of be strong and courageous, do exactly what I command you. This is, this is the mon this should be the mantra of those who follow Jesus. We listen to what Jesus says. We do exactly what God commanded us through Jesus. And we know God will be with us and we'll have success in bringing the kingdom of God to the nations. Yeah. I love the point you made about, uh, courage being looking beyond not concentrating on yourself but looking beyond yourself I think that's really really important um, because there is a form of courage uh, that people uh, have today w in which they concentrate on themselves and you try to banish fear and you and 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 you you know just try to muster it up from within um, the problem with that form of courage is though that uh, that that, you know, things can happen to you, you know, uh, you know, you, you can, you can try to muster up courage within you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to overcome whatever you're facing. Um, what, what the Bible teaches, though, is that real courage, um, and real lasting courage comes from not looking within, but looking above, looking beyond yourself, looking to God. Um, and you see that, of course, with the, with the, with the Lord Jesus, too. Um, Jesus doesn't banish his fears. Uh, he, he, he doesn't say, well, he doesn't pray. I know I can do this. Uh, you know, I know I can handle this. He, he, he doesn't say, you know, come on cup. I can't wait to drink this. He says, father, let this cup pass for me. 
Um, he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. The point I'm trying to make is Jesus was looking at something that enabled him to do it in spite of his fears. He didn't try to banish fear and just look within. Instead, he looked at something that was greater than his fears that then motivated him to do it. And actually, that's exactly what he teaches his disciples to do as well in the book of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him ran the race, despising the shame, endured the cross. Um, so our courage comes not from looking within us, but looking at him and seeing how deeply he's loved us and, and, and then responding to that. Uh, by, so the courage comes from looking beyond ourselves. I think that's really, really critical. And I think that was going to be critical for Joshua as well in this book. And just to complete the loop, I love what you brought up with Jesus' prayer in the garden. His prayer was finished with, not my will, but thy will be done. That's right. Use the language here in Joshua. Not whatever law I would want to follow in my flesh, but I'm following your law. Whatever you say, I'm not turning from the, to the right or to the left. Um, like you said, that reference in Hebrews 12, he, he was doing what would please the Father. And if we do that, that's where, that's where real courage is demonstrated. And that's really where, where real courage is found to be able yeah. to live life. So. And right. probably, worth, probably worth saying one, one other thing on that right now, especially in the climate we're in right now. Because there is, as you talked about, there's so much anger, and rightfully so, there's so much frustration about the, uh, everything going on. Um, but one thing that's really important for us to remember is that the greatest courage that's ever been seen by humankind came in Jesus, and it was motivated not by anger as much as by his love. Yeah. And if we really want to make a difference, if we really want to be courageous to do good, we have to let love be what drives everything that we're doing. That's what will empower us to do, uh, do things for the Lord. That's what will empower us to be useful for the Lord and to actually uh, glorify the Lord is when our courage is not coming from a self-centered or selfish or from within, but looking beyond at the Lord and loving the Lord and loving others. And that will motivate us to do good for the Lord. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, guys. So listen, we're going to, I'm going to kind of lay out quickly what we're going to do for the rest of the podcast. This may get long. We're not going to try to go especially long, but we recognize it might happen. We're going to basically try to cover some of the stories in the first 10 chapters, some of the episodes that um, where you see this courage and obedience to God or not, but for the most part, courage and obedience being um, demonstrated throughout the first part of the book of Joshua. Um, and so we're going to kind of take this episode by episode. So at some point you may be like, Hey, I need to take this is too long. I'm going to pause right here. So you'll be able to do that as we go. What we're going to try to do is just briefly summarize some of these sections and then maybe share a lesson or two that we can learn from these stories in, in the book of Joshua. So chapter two, we get introduced to a character named Rahab. Um, Caleb, you want to run the kind of the story, kind of overview it for us and uh, get us going on what we can learn from it. Well, so just like Moses sent spies into the land, spy out the land, in chapter two, Joshua sends spies out into the land to prepare for the Israelites to enter the land and conquer it. Um, and they go to this, uh, they go to this place called Jericho. Um, and, and it says that they enter in the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. And of course, when the king finds out that there's these Israelites who come into land and stay in the city, he's not too happy about it. And, and he wants to uh, bring them out and, uh, and, and punish them. Uh, maybe kill them. Uh, but um, so, and, and he finds out that these, these guys are staying at Rahab's house. Um, so they come to get the, uh, he sends a message to Rahab saying, hey, bring out these guys um, who've entered your house to get, because they've come to spy out the whole land. And the woman takes them up on the roof, hides them, and basically deceives uh, the uh, king into thinking uh, that she doesn't have them. And, uh, and so he tells, he, she tells him they, they'd taken off and, uh, and I don't know where they went. So, and, and basically turns the king around to go chasing after them. What's interesting to me though, is the reason why she does this. When the spies are about to lay down for night in verse eight, she goes up on the roof and this is what she says to him in verse nine. She said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how, how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts 
melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And then she begs for her life and says, hey, please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. And she asked for a sign. Um, now here's the, here's the cool thing to me about Rahab in this story. She's actually mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11 as one of the people of faith um, who, who by faith, it says the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So a couple of things to notice here. Number one, her past did not have to define her. Um, this is not a moral woman. This is a woman who is, who is involved in all the evils of the Canaanites. In Leviticus 18, it talks about how uh, one of the reasons God was going to bring judgment on the Canaanites, the people of Israel, was because of their immorality. They were, they were involved in all forms of immorality. And, and Rahab was caught up in that. But her past did not have to define her. And when she heard about the Lord, she was changed. As a result of that, she becomes known as a woman of faith. She's in the very lineage of Jesus. Um, it's really an incredible story about here's an outsider. She's not an Israelite. She's an outsider from Jericho who's brought into the family of, uh, of God and becomes even in the very lineage of Jesus. I think that's helpful because, look, man, sometimes we've done some things in our past that we just wonder, could I ever get past this? Could, I, could God ever forgive me for this? Could God ever uh, you know, let go of, could God, could God accept me and ever let go of the things I've done in my past? Rahab is a good reminder that the answer to that is yes, if I'll trust in the Lord. The other thing that really I love about Rahab, though, is she had never seen Yahweh work. Not personally. Like, she'd never seen a sign from Yahweh up until this point. She'd never seen him face to face. She'd never seen him win a battle, but she had heard about it. And this is a good reminder of what faith is, right? Faith is believing in what we don't see because of what we do see. Or in this case, it's believing in what we don't see because of what we've heard. And I love this about her because of what she's heard about Yahweh, she fears Yahweh. And because she fears Yahweh, she chooses to put her trust in Yahweh and risks her life to save these spies, trusting that if she does what is right and, and does what is pleasing to this true God, that this true God will also take care of her. And I believe that's exactly what God wants from us in terms of faith. He wants us to trust that he will take care of us. If we'll risk everything for him, then he has already risked it all for us and he'll take care of us in return. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, especially that last part. I mean, all that you said was great, but um, that concept of she, she took what she knew and she did her best to respond to God accordingly. Um, she was a prostitute and she lied. Those aren't commendable things. God's pretty right. clear about that. But it's interesting in Hebrews 11 and in James chapter 2, where she specifically gets highlighted. And I just want to double down. You kind of already mentioned this. In James 2, the only two people, it's a discussion about the importance of faith and, and acting, responding to God based on your faith with obedience. The only two people you mentioned are Rahab and Abraham. In other words, the big dog, the number one example of faith, the, the father of faith, and Rahab, she's listed alongside him. So her faith was just as effective, just as valuable as Abraham. So to your other point earlier, if I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I'm just not that strong. I'm not that great. Well, look, if Rahab can get listed next to Abraham, then there's, there's hope for any of us. But I love that in both those passages, she's never commended for lying nor for being a prostitute. But what she is commended for is for helping the spies. She knew, and she says, if you continue reading in Joshua 2, she knew about what God had done to the Egyptians. Um, which was now 40 years earlier, you know, that had been decades probably before she was born, unless she was quite old, but my guess would be not because the text mentions her father and mother and all this kind of stuff. So she had heard stories about these people and she chose to believe that, Hey, this God really matters. And I'm going to line up with him in whatever way I can. So I'm going to help these guys. Um, and she took the risk of not only helping the guys, but, you know, when they'd make the deal before they leave, hey, listen, she said, hey, spare my family when you come. I know you guys are going to just wipe the floor whenever you show up. And they say, okay, look, you can, anybody that's in your house, we'll, we won't harm them. And you make sure to hang this scarlet cord out your window so we know which house is yours and you guys don't get messed up in the, in the battle, in the skirmish. 
she did that, which means a, she hung the cord. And I guess people would have asked, why are you doing that? And I don't know that she told everybody, but I know she told her family because the family that was in her home, she went and told them that they needed to believe. So not only does she helped the spies, but she also helps her family and is willing to take a stand to say, hey, I'm going to be with the God of Israel. And I don't know how covert that was in society in general or how public that was, but I am impressed with her that she did what she could with what she knew. And that's a great challenge to me, whether I'm brand new to faith or I'm not even totally in the faith yet. Am I doing what I can with what I know? And maybe even a greater thing for someone who's reading the Bible a lot, been a Christian a while, am I following after the faith of Rahab who did what she could with what she knew? And the more you know, the more you need to be doing, the more you need to have the courage to obey the Lord. That's, she's a great model of the courage that God exhorted Joshua with, and we need to follow after that example. Amen. All right, cool. Anything else from Rahab you want to say before we, uh, before we keep it moving? I think that that covers some of it at least. Gives you a, what's your appetite to dig in a little more? Yeah. Um, so the next section that we're going to kind of think about is chapters three through five, which is where they've been on the uh, the east side of the Jordan River. They've had some battles. Moses prepped them with some of his last words in the plains of Moab, all that stuff. And now they're getting ready to actually go in. And there's a couple of interesting um, and strange things that happen. I'll just kind of lay it out, and then, Caleb, if you want to jump on first with uh, what you see as far as maybe some lessons we can learn. Um, first thing that happens is God says, hey, you guys are about to cross over, so get ready. Consecrate yourselves. And then he says, I want the priest to take the Ark of the Covenant in the poles on their shoulders like they were supposed to carry it, and then to walk into the river. And I love that. Just walk into the river. Uh, so they do it, and the second that their feet touch the water, which the text says specifically that it, in this season it had overflowed its banks. So it was, it was uh, high, uh, whatever you call it, and it's not high tide with a river, but anyway, whatever, it was washing. The second their, the priest's feet hit the water, the waters roll back, just like what God had done with the Red Sea, where he had parted the Red Sea. In this case, since it's a river, he rolls back the River Jordan so that the people can cross on dry land. Whenever they do that, God tells them to take some stones and to set up a memorial for this. And in chapter four, that's what they do. They cross the other side and uh, each of the tribes sets up a, a stone, piles it up as a memorial. And he specifically says, hey, whenever your kids kind of ask you, what's this all about? You're supposed to tell them, God brought us into this land. So priests go, and it's great too. Once everybody crosses, then the priests cross. And once they step out, bang, the waters flow again. Um, the whole thing being symbolic of, hey, I am bringing you into this land. You guys aren't bringing yourselves. You're not, it's not your power that's going to give you this blessing and this success. It's when you do what I tell you. Even when I tell you to do strange things, like grab the Ark of the Covenant and walk into the river and bang, I'm going to take you through. It's, it's just a clear sign. And I think that gets extended even more in chapter 5, where uh, God, after they're, they're in the land now, I mean, they're in enemy territory, and people knew about them um, from what they had done on the east side of the Jordan. Rahab testifies that. They knew about the Israelites. And here they are, and God says, here's what I want you to do. Circumcise all the men. <laughs> when you're in the most vulnerable possible situation, uh, I want you to make yourselves even more vulnerable. And the reason why is because the previous, the wilderness generation that we've talked about previously, um, they didn't do God's will. They didn't circumcise their children like the covenant that began with Abraham uh, was supposed to be critical to their lives as the people of Israel. They hadn't done that. And God says, we need to roll away the reproach of Egypt by um, performing this act. So it's interesting to me as they enter the land, there's just these strange things. First with crossing over the, the river, uh, then setting up the memorial stones, and then the circumcision thing. It's a strange battle prep for um, an invading army. What do, what do you see here? What do you think we should get out of this, uh, this kind of strange little section here in chapters three through five? Well, so the thing I love about these chapters is that Yahweh says to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of, his, of all Israel so that they may know that I'm with you as I am with uh, Moses. That's chapter three and verse seven. And, and what you see in these chapters is God coming through for Joshua. Like basically what God said was, hey, 
don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Trust me. Be strong and courageous. And I got you. I'll be with you. And this is where he proves it. He, you know, he walks up to the water and all of a sudden, bam, you know, the water splits. And the people are like, wow, this guy can do the same things Moses did. Well, why? Well, it's because he's, he's, he's the one who, who Yahweh has chosen and he's trusting in what Yahweh has said. And so God is showing himself, hey, I'm going to come through for you. I'm going to provide for you. And that strengthens Joshua's faith to then come through for the Lord. Uh, in chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, That day Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they stood in awe of Moses. And I, I think what you're seeing here is when you see Yahweh coming through for you, time after time after time, it strengthens your faith to trust him. And that's how you can get a guy like this who's, a, who's about to go into some of the toughest battles of his life, who's like, oh god wants us to be circumcised all right we're gonna do it god wants us to observe the passover all right we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do it the manna stops it doesn't it doesn't lead to any complaints doesn't lead to anything it what 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 is happening here is because the, yahweh is coming through for joshua joshua in turn is trusting him and obeying him and of course that's that's what we need to do as well as we see god's faithfulness to us and as we see god coming through for us time and time again it ought to lead us to say, you know what? I can trust him, even though it may be crazy right now, even though it may be scary. I can trust him. He's going to come through for me. Let me just be obedient to him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe along with that, right? Before, I mean, but for now, they haven't gone in and actually fought any battles. Right. As you pointed out, God's doing these little things to kind of increase Joshua's personal trust in God and to increase the people's trust in Joshua. I really like the end of chapter five. It's a really unique section. I want to read it, verse, beginning of verse 13. Um, but I think it, it goes along with exactly what you're just saying there. Joshua 5, beginning of verse 13. So this is after they've crossed the river. They've set up the memorial stones. They've circumcised the people. And as you pointed out, and I think this is something to emphasize, they observe the Passover and the manna stops. God had been feeding them for decades this way. And it was kind of God's signal of like, hey, guys, you're here. I got mm -hmm. you. You don't need this stuff from me anymore. It's time to move on from that. You're moving on from the wilderness. You're moving on from the reproach of the past. You're moving into the blessings that I'm going to give you. And here's how. Chapter 5, verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, no, I love that answer. Like, no, no, yeah. I'm not on your side or their side. You got it. You got it twisted, man. Here's how this works. No, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. In other words, he says, nah, man, the question you need to be asking is not whether I'm on your side or their side. I am the side of the Lord. You need to be asking, are you over here or are you over there? Joshua yep. wants to be on the side of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he bowed down and said to him, what has my master to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host or the Lord's armies said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Um, I, don't, I think the, the weeds are a little too tall for, a, for either one of us to get into too deeply to try to parse out. People question, who is this captain of the Lord's army? I will just make a couple of quick observations. The language that he uses is the same language that was used when God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning yep. book. Take, up, take your sandals off your feet for where you're staying is holy. And the reason was, hey, God is here. Um. I think it stands to reason that that's, it's, the same, it's the same statement being made here with this captain of the Lord's armies. But it's clear that he's not exactly the same as Yahweh himself. It's somebody else who can make the same claim as Yahweh that the place wherever he is is holy. He receives worship. Joshua bows down before him. And while other angels throughout the Bible say, hey, oh, get up. I'm a servant of God just like you. This individual doesn't get on to Joshua for bowing down. Um, and so it kind of reminds us of somebody else who would come and people would bow down before him, who would lead the armies of God. Uh, and the place where he was, was holy because he was the holy one of God. That's kind of my take on it in general. I'm not ready to like plant my flag too deeply on exactly 
who this person is or how to think about it. But for sure, this individual reminds us of what Jesus would be uh, whenever he came. And, uh, and this person was a source of strength to Joshua right before they go in the land. It's a really clear representation. Here's this, this general, this divine general with his sword drawn, ready to go fight for the Lord. And Joshua, if you're with me, then you're going to be good. Yeah, I think that is the, the question you asked, I think is really important here. And the question that Joshua asked is the wrong question. You know, whose side are you on? The question is not whose side is God on? The question is whose side am I on? Who, who, whose side am I fighting on? Am I going to fight for the Lord or am I going to fight uh, against the Lord? And, and I think this is a really kind of sobering conversation for Joshua to remind him of like the, the, the issue here is will you be on the Lord's side or not? Um, Jesus does a similar thing um, in Matthew 7 where he talks about not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter. Only those who do the will of my Father will enter. And then he goes on to say, um, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that in your name? And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Which makes me think about this. You know, a lot of us will say, well, I know the Lord. I know the Lord. Um, but the real question isn't whether I can say, whether I say I know the Lord. The real question is, will the Lord say that he knows me? Whose side am I really fighting on? Uh, and again, all throughout Joshua and all throughout the New Testament, the way to determine the answer to that question is, whose will am I doing? Am I, am I doing my own will or am I doing the will of the Father? Am I doing my own will or am I doing God's will in my life? Um, and that determines whose side I'm fighting on. That's what's going to determine whose side, whose side uh, the Lord or, or whose side um, the Israelites are going to be on. Um, when they do what is right and they obey the will of the Lord, the Lord wins their battles for them. Uh, and when they disobey the Lord, the Lord, the Lord makes sure that they get destroyed. Because the question is not whose side is the Lord on. The question is whose side are they going to fight on? Are they going to fight for the Lord or are they just going to fight for themselves? Yeah. And this is what we see through the rest. This little section was kind of like training wheels. Hey, yeah. walk into the water and just see what I'm going to do. You know, hey, set up the memorial stones um, so that you can tell your kids about what I'm doing. You know, yeah. hey, go be circumcised. Make yourself more vulnerable than you could possibly be in enemy territory. See what I'm going to do. Observe yeah. all this stuff. It was training wheels to get them ready for exactly what you're talking about. All right. So uh, take us into chapter chapter six, because this is where the action in some ways really gets going here in chapter six. We already saw the spies check out the city of Jericho, which was going to be their first uh, place of conquest back in chapter two. They go, you know, check it out. They meet Rahab then they leave and the stuff in three through five happens as they come into the land. And then chapter six, they actually come to Jericho. So uh, take us in. Well, so um, often what would happen in, in ancient times when you have cities like this is they have walls, large walls, and so when an, when an army comes up to attack, um, you know, you just close the gates and, uh, and you just wait it out and hope for the army runs out of food and water and they leave. Um, and that's what Jericho does. They securely bar the gates. They've got these huge walls. And uh, so it seems like, you know, they're thinking they're safe. Well, I love this, too, because, you know, the Israelites just been circumcised. They're, they're in a vulnerable place. And even though they waited till they healed, they still think, man. Um, you know, now, now we got to go fight one of the strongest cities in all of Israel right after that. Um, well, Yahweh says to Joshua, Hey, I'm delivering Jericho in your hands along with this king and his fighting, fighting men. And here's how it's going to happen. Here's the battle plan. Just march around the city once with all the armed men, do it for six days, have seven priests carry the trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around seven times. The priests are going to blow the trumpets. And when you hear the trumpet shout, you're, you're, you're all going to shout and the wall of the city is just going to fall down and the army will go up and everybody will go straight in. Uh, I'm Joshua. I'm thinking, okay, you know, that's kind of a strange battle plan. Yeah. Nonetheless, imagine Joshua coming to the people and being like, all right guys. So here's the deal. And he lays it out and you can just imagine somebody looking and be like, Dude, you sure that was the Lord you were talking to? You need to go like check that out one more time. Make sure you actually were talking to yeah. the Lord because that that yeah. sounds ridiculous. Yes, it does. Maybe he ate something strange last night. Um, but nonetheless, I think what you're seeing here is these are people of faith because they've already seen how faithful God has been. And so even though God gives them this ridiculous, literally ridiculous battle plan, they follow through with it. They march around. They march around the seventh day 
They blow the trumpets, everybody shouts, and all of a sudden, bam, there goes the walls. The walls fall down. They go in. They take, they take, the, take the city easily, easily. Well, why did they take the city? Well, Joshua says, shout, for Yahweh has given you the city. You see, the whole point of this is the battle doesn't belong to them. The battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord is the one who's faithful. And the whole city gets, gets, uh, comes crumbling down and gets destroyed, except for Rahab and all who were with her in her house. They were spared um, because they had been faithful to the Lord, which, again, shows you, um, you know, a lot of people want to talk about how, you know, God's doing genocide or something like that in, in wiping out the Canaanites. Actually, God is bringing judgment on those who are refusing to seek him. Rahab, again, serves as evidence that if a person wants to trust in the Lord and if a person wants to be faithful to the Lord, then they could be saved. They didn't have to be an ethnic Israelite in order to be a person of faith who could, be, who could, who could live with God's people. And Rahab reminds us of that as her whole household is spared because of her faith. Yeah, and this is, I mean, it's probably good for us to note, just like Rahab gets highlighted in the New Testament um, as a, an example of faith. Hebrews 11 also says the walls of Jericho fell because of the people's faith. That's and, right. And the thing to me that's interesting about this, one, the stuff we were joking around about as far as how we might have responded when we heard this battle plan, you don't see that mentioned in the text at all. It doesn't right. seem like people questioned it at all. They were just like, all right, cool. I guess that's it. Let's do it. You know, and, and I, I don't know, maybe there were some people that questioned it, but maybe not. Maybe all of them were just like, yeah, cool. That sounds great. And what's amazing to me about that is things to obey God in this context made them very vulnerable. Even the, the way the people are laid out when you look at it, like the priests are out there, yeah. not soldiers. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, their most important national relic, if I can say that, um, that symbolized God's presence with them and that they're putting that at risk. They're marching around the walls of a city, and I don't know how close they were exactly, but they must have been close enough to where theoretically the people of Jericho could have attacked them from the top of their city wall. The, the vulnerability that the people were placing themselves in would make a lot of us be like, oh, no, if I obey God like that, it'll be too dangerous. Right. But actually to obey God, even to do things that make you afraid or that appear to, to cause your life to be at risk, because it was an obedience to God, it was actually their strength. And similarly, another reason why I think it's their faith is so impressive, not only was their faithful obedience an act of trust because it made them vulnerable, there's also one thing that I think, they, I, I, I think anyone who would have thought about uh, what they were doing would have made them be like, wait a second. So when they're marching around the, the walls, they do it for seven days. Now, I don't know when this started or when this ended, right? The seventh day of their attack, they march seven times, and then they actually go in, and the walls fall, and they uh, raid the city and, and, uh, and you know, uh, destroy the inhabitants and all that. One of those seven days would have been the Sabbath day. And so I have – it would have been a question at least. Wait a second, guys. We're supposed to rest on the Sabbath day, right? Well, yeah, but God's also telling you to do this. So they don't say, well, I already had a preconceived notion of what the Sabbath day is supposed to look like, blah, blah, blah. They were willing to embrace what God said about how he would give them rest during this seven-day period. So I guess my point is, is not only uh, were they willing to obey even as it made them vulnerable, they were willing to obey the word of the Lord even when it didn't quite compute with their previously held notion of what God would want them to do. It's just impressive to me. They just fully trust God. They fully obey God, which demonstrates that trust, even though it might have, it did make them vulnerable. And even though it would have gone against the grain of what they would have previously thought in some respects, it's just really impressive and a great model of what real, back to the beginning of the book, what strength and courage means is obey the word of the Lord, even if it might seem to put you at risk. And even if it might kind of go against what you would have expected previously. Yeah, you have to think by day five or six, you got people in Jericho up there just laughing, like, what's wrong with these people? These guys are nuts. These guys are crazy. And yet on the seventh day, I mean, can you imagine the scene? Oh, my goodness. The walls come tumbling down and the whole thing ends. And, it, and the people really did nothing to win the battle. It was all the Lord. Yeah. yeah. All right. So we've, we've been all good stuff so far. Chapter seven through nine, not quite as good. 
um, after Jericho, they're pretty much feeling themselves and they go spy out the next city of uh, AI. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. Maybe it's I, but it literally is the letters AI. So I'm gonna say AI. Um, they send some spies and the spies come back. They're like, honestly, Joshua, tiny place, much smaller than Jericho. Don't bother sending everybody. It's kind of a waste. Just send a couple thousand. So they do. But the problem was that a man named Aiken had gone into Jericho after they defeated Jericho and he had taken some of the things that God had said, Hey, listen, that stuff, it's consecrated. It belongs to me. It's not going to be go to you guys. I'm giving you the victory, but the spoils are going to belong to me. And I have to assume that that would relate to the things of the tabernacle or maybe they'd be just or whatever. Anyway, Aiken had stolen some stuff. He had been greedy and he had taken it and hidden it. And so the people without realizing it were under a curse, a temporary curse from God because they had violated what he said. Uh, I should say Aiken had violated it. And since Aiken had violated it, all the people were held accountable for that. So they go into this battle against AI and this relatively weak city turns them back and actually takes out some of the Israelite soldiers. And so Joshua goes to God. He's like, what's going on here? Like we just had a great victory. I thought we were, I thought everything was going good. What happened? And God says, well, look, you guys have violated what I said. And he prescribes kind of a, um, a legal procedure, for lack of a better term. You know, hey, we're going to take, I'm going to buy a lot. I'm going to show you which tribe and then which clan and then which family and then which man in those families uh, is, is the one who's responsible. So they do that in chapter seven uh, and they end up dealing with it. And that's the good thing. Even though they mess up here, they find the sinner and they deal with it they execute Achan because he had disobeyed God. And then in chapter eight, they listen to what God has to say. They go into the battle. They do it like he tells them and they end up winning a great victory. So a failure, but then they turn to God immediately and their success right after that. Uh, chapter nine is a little bit similar, not exactly chapter nine and 10, I guess we're going to talk about chapter 10 kind of on its own, but in chapter nine, they have another mistake that they make because some people that live nearby the Gibeonites they're like, hey, listen, we, we're going to get destroyed by these people. We need to, we need to get them on our side. Uh, and I don't know why they did this. Maybe they had an idea that the Israelites wouldn't want to form a treaty, but they come and they, they pretend like they're from far away. They dress in messed up clothes. They bring old food. And they're like, listen, we've traveled from a distant land. We just need you guys to be our allies. We don't want any trouble with you, blah, blah, blah. Joshua, nor any of the elders, consult God. And they end up forming a treaty with these people, which were going to be their neighbors in the land of Canaan, which was exactly against what God had commanded them in the law. And Moses had doubled down on in the book of Deuteronomy. And so it comes out that these people were, the Gibeonites were really close by. They had deceived uh, Joshua and Israel, and they weren't from far away. And here they are. They'd made a treaty with some of the people that they were supposed to defeat and eradicate from the land, these idol worshipers and all that. And so Joshua goes back to him. He's like, dude, what's that about? And people are like, hey, you know, we just didn't want you guys to destroy us. And so Joshua and the people of Israel, which I, I think is commendable. I think it's kind of hard to tell. There's not exactly commentary given. But they say, all right, well, we're not going to go back on our word. We promised you guys that we wouldn't destroy you. So we're not going to. But you guys are going to be our forced labor. You know, like we're not going to act like everything's cool and we're not going to um, leave you alone. We're not going to let you and your influence permeate the land and, uh, and influence us. So it's a mistake. But as we'll see in chapter 10, um, they keep on going and doing God's will, even after they make a mistake. So this section is kind of weird because you got some down stuff as far as some of the sins and mistakes they made. And yet you see that they don't let those mistakes totally derail them, which I think is instructive for us. But what else do you see in this section in chapter 7 through 9? It's also interesting to me just how uh, Joshua reacts to his first failure as a leader in, in chapter 7. So, like, you know. I mean, obviously, it's not directly his fault that Aiken did all this stuff. Um, you know, I mean, Aiken, man, he's got some gall. You know, you, you didn't even win the battle. The Lord wins the battle for you, and you're going to go in there and disobey it. Like, I don't know. This and you're going to get away with God not noticing. A God? Yeah. Like, I mean, come on, man. The same God who dropped the walls is uh, is the God you're going to test by uh, disobeying his command. It takes, I, don't, I don't know what was up with that. But you also notice um, – that Joshua, there's no mention of Joshua talking to God about going up to I beforehand. 
Um, he didn't inquire of the Lord or anything. He, he didn't wait for a word from the Lord. He just went on up and basically said, oh, well, this, this is a weak one. Um, you know, this is a tiny little place. We don't even need our whole army. We'll send 3,000 up and it'll be over. Um, and, and the thing that really gets me, though, is when they lose, um, the people are afraid. And, and instead of Joshua being the courageous one to stand up and say, hey, what are you afraid of? And go to the Lord. Joshua tears the clothes, falls down on the ground. Um, and he stays there till the evening and then he cries out to God and he, he's basically like throwing a self-pity party. Why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan? Deliver us in the hands of Amorites to destroy us. If only we've been content to stay on the other. It's like he's given up after one failure. And then he says, pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites, the other people will hear about this. They'll surround us and they'll wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great game? And basically, God tells Joshua, get up, dude. What's, what are you doing on your face? You've sinned. And that's why this has happened. You know, it's like, hey, don't you remember the last battle? Don't you remember what, what I had just done for you? If you'll just do what's right, then you'll be okay. Um, and I think that's good for us because it's, a, it's kind of a reminder of how we are sometimes, even after the Lord wins battles for us, even after the Lord comes through for us time and time again. Um, we do something wrong. But then we get mad at God for uh, for not coming through for us or not doing whatever. When really what we need to do is we need to get up and we need to repent and we need to do what's right. Um, we need to deal with uh, the sin um, and, and address it and, and then move forward. And once he did that, the Lord easily wins the battle of I and the Lord easily wins all the battles. It's not it's not a question of whether or not the Lord can handle the Canaanites. It's a question of whether or not Joshua and the people of Israel will trust the Lord and obey him. Yeah. Yeah. And before we jump into chapter 10, just to kind of piggyback on what you're saying there. The problem with both of these stories is they didn't consult the Lord first before they took right. actions. That's right. And that's a good demonstration. So if you want to, maybe this is a, a little bit of a crude way of saying it, I guess. But if, if in the first part of the book, we say, hey, you need to pay attention to what the, the teachings of God are and obey them. Uh, maybe for our, again, kind of the crude way of saying it in our terms is read your Bible. You know, read your Bible and do what you find there. Well, then the other element is you need to inquire of the Lord. And while we may not have the, the direct uh, back and forth communication that prophets like Joshua had with God, uh, we can go to the Lord in prayer. And if I'm making decisions about my service to God without seeking the Lord's will in, in the word and in prayer, I'm going to have some pretty big blunders and failures. Now, the question is, do I pick myself up and repent and do better and do God's will moving forward? But I think you see the importance of inquiring of the Lord, turning to the Lord and looking for his will um, by talking to him about our decisions before we make them. Uh, and That's like right. said, not despairing, not giving up, but actually trusting the Lord. That's right. That's right. All right. So run chapter 10 for us uh, uh, as we kind of work. This will be the last one we'll look at and we'll kind of share some lessons and then uh, that'll be it. Well, so course once the Gibeonites make a treaty with uh the Israelites well now everybody's going to come for the Gibeonites because like hey they, you know they're trying to get on the, this good side and uh and so they come for them five kings come together that they're ready to uh to try to wipe out the Gibeonites and of course the Gibeonites are running to Israel hey you guys got to help us out here you got to come through for us and uh and and Joshua then does he comes through for them he goes up for to fight brings all his best men and god tells joshua don't be afraid i've given them into your hand not not one of them will be able to withstand you and they march all the way through the night joshua takes them by surprise i guess they were expecting to fight gibeon but didn't expect israel to come through i don't know what was going on there maybe uh they just didn't think the israelites would would come and help him out but uh god throws them throws them into confusion they delete, they defeat them completely. What's interesting, the interesting note to me about this battle, though, is that as these kings are and their armies are fleeing from Israel, Yahweh hurls large hailstones down on them. And the text notes that more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of Israel. And the, again, the point is the battle belongs to the Lord. There's, there is no battle he cannot win. It's not as if Israel's winning this by their own strength and their own might and their own power. They're winning because the Lord is on their side and that the Lord is faithful to them and the Lord is keeping his promises to them. And, uh, and actually, 
I think that's the big, um, the, the critical thing. Um, God is even able to uh, make the sun stop in the middle of the sky and for about a full day. And uh, the text says there's never been a day like it before or a day since. Um, but what's happening here is God is showing himself that he's the real warrior. He's the real, you know, they're, they're, they get to act like warriors. But really, the warrior who is winning the battles is the Lord. And again, it's a reminder for us that if we want to win the battles of life that we face, we've got to turn to the Lord. We've got to lean on the Lord. We've got to inquire of the Lord. We've got to trust the Lord. We've got to obey the Lord. And if we'll do that, there's no battle we're going to face that the Lord cannot win. There's no battle that we're going to face that the Lord will not uh, deliver us from. Uh, he, he always delivers his people. Now, it's not the same as them in that God has promised to uh, always make everything go our way, you know, when we go out and we fight our battles. But what, it, what, what the promise is, is that God will be with you in temptation and trials, that he's not going to give you any temptation or trial that will overtake you that's, except what's common to man. He's going to be faithful. He'll provide you a way of escape. That is, God will help you to overcome every trial. And God hasn't promised that we'll never uh, suffer or that we'll never be killed. Um, the truth is disciples of Christ did suffer and they were killed. But the thing about God is that he always delivers his people because God can deliver you from death or he can also deliver you through death to be reunited with him. And, uh, and this story just reminds me that uh, if I'll just trust him and I'll be faithful to do his will, he'll win the battles, he'll get the glory, and he'll also take care of me as I trust in him. Yeah. Yeah, and what I love, kind of tying ourselves back to chapter one from this, um, you know, after the battle, after God makes the sun stand still, after he defeats the, the army of the armies that were opposed to God's people um, with the hailstones and all that stuff, uh, some of the people flee and Joshua and the army chase them down and they get them and they're going to execute them. And in verse 25, there's this interesting thing that happens. Verse 25, Joshua said to them, do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. The reason why I highlight that is um, all throughout the book, Joshua is the one who needed to be told, be strong and courageous. This yep. is, I'm going to go ahead disclaimer. This is theory. This has been probably over psychoanalyzing Joshua, but I will say, um, Joshua has to get told this a lot. Even in this chapter, in chapter 10 and verse eight, God has to tell him again, do not fear them for I've given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So even after all these other battles, he has to be told, do not fear. As you pointed out in chapter seven, you see Joshua despairing immediately it's like one failure and he's like oh it's over why did you even blah 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 now he keeps coming back to god and that's what kept him going but it seems to me that joshua was a guy who was kind of prone to emotional fear uh, real fear no he was courageous enough to do what god wanted him to do but in the first chapter god has to tell him three times be strong and courageous after that at the end of chapter one the people have to come and they say be strong and courageous and this is all after Moses had had to pull Joshua aside in Deuteronomy 31 and say, be strong and courageous. And whenever you back it up to the first time we see Joshua needing to be strong, he was. But in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, Joshua is not the first one who spoke up of the spies. That's the first time we really see him in action. It's Caleb who spoke up. And then Joshua laments, but Caleb was the one that said, we can do this. Here's my point. It seems to me that all throughout Joshua's life, it was pretty tough for him to be strong and courageous. But it's really cool to me to see the journey of this guy who really wasn't willing to speak up, though he wanted to do what was right in Numbers 13 and 14. This guy who needed Moses to pull him aside and say, hey, man, you got to be strong and courageous. And who God needed to say in Joshua 1 three times, be strong and courageous. And the people need to say, be strong and courageous. And this guy who would despair anytime things went wrong and just, it was hard for him. But I love that because of what he saw God doing, and here in this grandest way, making the sun stand still and destroying enemies with hailstones, all that stuff, Joshua learned the lesson to where he could tell other people. He knew what it was like to struggle with fear, I think. Uh, and so he was able to encourage others to say, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. Look what the Lord has done, and we know what he will do because of that. And if Joshua could say that, how much more can we say that today? 
there's kind of an interesting inverse that God made the sun stand still to win this victory for Joshua. But whenever another person named Yeshua, Joshua, same name, Jesus, Jesus and Joshua, the same name, uh, just they come out different in English. But whenever he was on the cross, God didn't make the sun stand still, but he did cover up the sun with darkness to symbolize how bad things were. But the point is, while he made the sun stand still in Joshua, he covered up the sun with Jesus. And both of those moments teach us God is doing something world-changing. God is fighting for us. And if he's doing something on the battlefield with Joshua and the army or on that hill in the cross of Jesus, if he was doing something then, then we don't have anything to fear. So we need to be strong. We need to be courageous and follow the Lord wherever he'll lead. Uh, I love that. And that encourages me because when I feel afraid, I know that I'm not the first person and I can learn to have courage and I can share the courage God's given me with other people, just like Joshua does here in this story. Amen. All right, man. Anything else you think we need to um, kind of highlight before we wrap it up here? Nah, we got to save something for next week. Yeah. So. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks everybody. Um, read the book of Joshua. It's awesome stuff. It's really encouraging. We've given little, little snippets here, but you can get a lot more out of it if you read it for yourself. And next week we're going to try to look at uh, the second half, which in some ways is a little bit less exciting, but uh, is really vital for understanding the Lord and what he's about. So if you want to read ahead, read through the whole book of Joshua and Lord willing, we'll uh, talk about the rest of it next week. So thanks so much. I hope you're well. Please let us know if there's anything we can do for you. And uh, we hope you'll be strong and courageous in the Lord. Amen. Thanks, guys. The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.